0: We have a guest speaker today, Justin Hall. And you know that uh, he's my brother-in-law, married to Laura's sister, Melissa. The boys are Melissa, and the boys are here as well. And it's always good when he comes through, I like to ask him to preach. Now, if he was my brother-in-law and couldn't preach, we wouldn't have him preach when he's here. But he is my brother-in-law and can sort of preach, so we, we make an exception for him. He pastors the Cedar Bluff Baptist Church in Atkins, Virginia. And uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your church before you preach, but it's, I think it's 130 years old, and um, it was a good, solid church when he got there, uh, but he's done such a tremendous job there, and it's exciting to see what God's doing with that work. So I'm excited to hear him preach. Um, now, you've met my mother-in-law, and you'll see why I am the favorite son-in-law, but he's going to come and preach for us. Thank you, Jim. Your pastor says such nice things about me in your presence. Before we came to the auditorium, he said, I have one rule for you, don't bore me. It reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my elderly church members not too long ago. A sweet little lady came to me. We were at a funeral and she said, Pastor, I just want to tell you what your preaching means to me. I have learned so much since you've been here and... I really enjoyed it. And she said, I really especially like that message you preached on being still and knowing God. And as a pastor, you know, when somebody starts complimenting you, you, your estimation of them goes up much higher. You recognize that God has given them the gift of discernment. And then as my mind began to catalog the message she was speaking about, because I thought maybe this will be a good one to preach out somewhere, I went back in my folder and I realized that was the message of the last guest speaker that we had. (laughs) So it would bring me immeasurably joy if one of you dear ladies, say Carol, could do that to your pastor some weeks down the road. I mean, really set him up. Compliment what their preaching has done for you, and then reference my sermon as being the favorite one you've heard him preach recently. That that would really help me out. Cedar Bluff Baptist Church, 133 years old, and uh, I think this lady was a founding member, the one that said this. But uh, good good folks there, just uh, just down to earth, uh, country Appalachian people. And uh, about an hour from where I grew up, God graciously allowed me to come back and pastor uh, so that we can be close to help my mom and my aunts out uh, who are uh, having some health issues. And so, good to be with you today. If you have your Bible, let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I want to talk to you about the transformative power of Jesus Christ. You know, today's the last day of the calendar year and tomorrow is day one of 2018. And I don't know about you, but I get excited about things restarting. And I, I like a fresh start, a new start. There's optimism. There's hope. You can put the past behind you. I think it's natural for us to to take our past year in review. And something about this time of year, maybe we've been conditioned to it, We we look back over the year and we kind of put it in that category and we look at the things that we've done and We assess our performance, maybe give it a grade, that's passing, that's failing, this needs a little improvement, Uh, that needs to change completely, and when we determine that something needs to change, we call that a New Year's resolution, right? And so, some people may already be building those up in your mind, some of you have uh, tried that in the past and it didn't work out, so you're against New Year's resolutions, But uh, resolutions, I think, are good because they express the desire to change. It is that desire to say, you know what, I'm not satisfied with where I am in this area. I I want to do better. I want to improve. As a matter of fact... Uh, the tightness of my waistband is telling me that I want to improve on my eating in 2018 and I want to make that a New Year's resolution. And uh, resolution is good and it is a necessary step on the path to transformation. A resolution, that desire to change, is a necessary step on the path to transformation. So let's look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 and see how these all fit together. I beseech you therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the opportunity to minister Your Word to Your people. I thank You for the faithful folks who are here today finishing out their year in Your house. Lord, we have reasons why we could have stayed away today, but because of our desire to worship You, our desire to be impacted by You, to be changed by You, we are here today. And Father, we accept every one of Your promises that Your Word will not return void. That it is like a surgeon's scalpel that will do surgery in our spiritual lives. And Lord, we come today seeking transformation through Christ. And so I pray and ask, Father, that you would help me to explain your word and point us to an example that helps us reach that goal. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The transforming power of Christ can literally change our lives like nothing else in the world. Jesus is the greatest differentiating factor of all factors in the world. And so if you are a Christian, there is an infinite difference between you and a non-Christian. There could not be a greater differentiating factor than Jesus Christ. The problem is that somehow we invite the King of kings and the Lord of lords into our lives and He doesn't disturb much of what's there. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand how that works. We cannot bring an elephant into our living room and not have the furniture rearranged, can we? So how is it that we could bring God into our lives and it doesn't disturb or rearrange anything in it. And so as we think about that, I want us to consider the fact that for the transformation process to really reach its full effectiveness, there has to be compliance on our part. There has to be this personal, voluntary willingness for Christ to change The Apostle Paul is beseeching them. He is saying, I am begging you to present your bodies. Be complicit in the transformation process. You see, Christ will not force us into His mold. We must voluntarily yield to His transformative process. It's true, the Lord loves us too much to leave us to our own devices, He will convict us and He will prompt us and He will urge us, but He will never force us to change, watch this, against our will. We have to submit our will to His if we want to see the full effects of His transformation in our life. Like a patient in need of a surgical operation We must present our bodies of our own volition. If you've ever had a surgery, you have to show up. You have to voluntarily enter in to that room. You have to be the one who presents yourself for that surgeon to do the operation. We must be willing to stay on the operating table. And above all, we must trust the surgeon. There's no way that you and I would let somebody cut on us that we did not trust. We check out their degrees, their certificates. I've got people in my church, they will research their doctors before they will let them do anything. They will go online and check out and see if they've had complaints or lawsuits or that sort of thing. And I understand that because this is the only body that we get. We need to trust the surgeon. But let me ask you, is there any reason why we could not trust Jesus to operate on our spiritual life? We have no reason not to fully yield ourselves, and we must desire the outcome of the procedure. That's where that resolution idea comes in. It is that I want to be different than I am, spiritually speaking. And if we desire that, then we are on that path to experiencing the transformation that Christ wants to do in our lives. When you think about it, for a surgery, it may be the removing of a tumor, the replacement of a joint, or the repairing of an injury. But spiritually speaking, it is the removal of sin. Right? It has a way of attaching itself parasitically to our lives, doesn't it? Like a slow-growing tumor, we may not notice at first before long the effects of it are showing the drain on our spiritual life. And there are times that we need it removed. It may be the replacement of a heart. You know, the Bible talks about the heart in terms of hard-heartedness and tender-heartedness. And the psalmist said that God created in him a new heart. And we are to guard our hearts with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. And our heart can get hard through the traffic of life. And sometimes we need God to give us a fresh heart, a tender heart, a new heart. Or perhaps it's the repairing of the soul. You know, those soul-level injuries are some of the most painful. Those emotional scars, those mental scars, those scars of betrayal and wrong that you and I carry with us. They are not able to be read on our face, but they sometimes cause us the greatest amount of pain. In our lives. Did you know we have a great physician who can operate on every one of those issues in our lives? And when we present ourselves and we voluntarily yield ourselves to Him and give Him that liberty to work in our lives, the process will yield a greater Christ likeness. It requires trust in God and a willingness to stay on His operating table. You know what the difficulty is? Notice this, verse 1, Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Think about that. Paul Paul is begging people to do this. I beg you, I beseech you. Please, brethren, saved ones by the mercies of God that you present There's that idea of compliance, of presenting ourselves. Yes, Lord, here I am. Work on me. I'm not okay the way that I am. I want to be different, and the difference is going to come from you. But notice, present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know, dead sacrifices are much easier to manage, are they not? Right? In the Old Testament, there were no living sacrifices. They were... Dead sacrifices. And so they would cut their throats. Their lifeblood would go from their body and they would throw them on the altar. And guess what? They'd stay. But if you've ever tried to put yourself on the altar of God or on the operating table of God, you know full well that you are living. And just like a living being, when you feel the incision, there is a natural reaction to draw back. Whoa, stop everything. I'm not sure that I want this. And the fact is, there is anesthesia for surgery. But there is no anesthesia for spiritual surgery. You and I will feel the pressure of the blade. We will feel the cut of God when He removes sin from our life. And we must be willing to stay on the operating table until the surgery is finished. This is not as easy as it may sound because there are two opposing forces at work in life attempting to pull us in two different directions. Notice verse 2 and be not conformed to the world, but be ye what? You say it. Transformed. So, two opposing forces, is there not? There's two entities that are going to pull you in two different directions. It is either being conformed to the world, going along with everybody else. I'm okay because I'm as good as anybody else or maybe I'm a little bit better than the people around me. I'm just going to keep going on this path. It's exerting pressure on me. I will go with the flow or I will be transformed. But do you understand you cannot have both at the same time? You cannot be conformed to the world and be transformed by Christ. Do you agree with me on that from the text? Conformed is fitting into the mold of the world. The culture around us exerts constant pressure on us to be like them in thought, in morals, in behavior, in language, so on. Have you ever seen, I was reading recently that uh, this, uh, this uh, social movement... Uh, to make the LGBT agenda acceptable has been the most aggressive ever documented in history, ever. There has never, ever been a social campaign as aggressive as this one to try and get everybody to accept this as status quo. And you and I have to realize that we're living in a world that's constantly exerting pressure on us to think like them, speak like them, act like them, behave like them, have the same morals and standards and values. But following Christ will call for us to go against the grain of the world. Was it not aged John who wrote these words to his beloved children when he said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world? If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And it's not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we have to understand we cannot be on both tracks at the same time. We are either going to be conformed or we are going to be transformed. It's like wading upstream in a river. There is resistance with every single step. And the force of the current threatens to sweep you off your feet and carry you away. That is what it is like trying to follow Christ in this world. There are no easy steps. It's like walking in the Chicago wind. I heard that if the wind ever stopped blowing in Chicago, everybody would fall down. (laughs) Why? Because they are used to the force going against them and the same is true for us, spiritually speaking. But God's desire for us is to be transformed. That, that, that word is where we get our English word metamorphosis. And that means a profound change from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism. It's uh, like going from the caterpillar to the pupa, from the pupa to the butterfly. That's what it means in the life of a butterfly. It is that significant transformation. But what does it mean in my life or in your life? Well, if you're adept at finding passages in your Bible, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That same word is used, translated a little differently in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that gives us a bit more explanation as to what does it mean to be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, "...but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image." from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That word transformed is the same as changed into the same image. The transformation process that we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 will change us to look like a reflection of Christ in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, and in the way that we behave. I can think of no greater New Year's resolution than wanting to become more Christ-like. As admirable as it is to say, I want to advance my education, or I want to reduce my weight, or I want to get more fit, or I want to do this, I want to do that. I can think of nothing better to put our energy into than wanting to be more like christ And while compliance is required, He will not force us against our will. It takes more than just my desire to transform me. It takes the power of Christ to do that. And so for the person who is not saved, it doesn't matter if they make the resolution they want to become more like Christ. They will never do it without Christ in them. But all the difference that Christ makes. Sadly, sometimes we get used to living in a way that is not experiencing the fullness of Christ and we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that this is the norm for the Christian life when God has so much more for us. To get a better grasp of this idea of transformation, I, I want us to see what it looked like in the life of a person. I, I have this firm belief that everything that God teaches in the Bible, He demonstrates in the Bible. And so if he teaches us about holiness, he shows us the picture of holiness in somebody's life. Well, who pictures this idea of transformation for us better than the person who wrote about it in Romans 12? It's the Apostle Paul. And so if you would, let's go to the book of Acts, where we will spend the remainder of our time this morning. Acts chapter 8. Now I know that this may seem dangerous turning to an entirely new text at this point in a sermon. You may be thinking that we're going to make up for both services today. (laughs) But this is more of a flyover observation. Uh, We're not going to dig into each of these words and and twist them and, and look at them in different lights and see what they mean. We just want to draw and say, okay, what does transformation look like from a distance? What did it look like in the life of Paul the apostle. We we meet this guy in Acts chapter 8 notice how he's described what he was like. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, watch this guy, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And so this is where Saul started out. He hated Christ, he hated Christians, and he was doing his part to try and stamp it out. Turn over to Acts 9 and pick up the narrative there. Acts 9, 1. And Saul, watch this. Yet breathing out threatenings. Think about the verbiage that is used there. Breathing out. Have you ever noticed that when you get worked up, your breathing changes? If you get angry, you will notice that you will begin heaving a bit because of your breath. (laughs) And you're breathing out. Why? Because now something has kicked into you biologically that is affecting you. This is where Saul is at. He is just outraged every single day by this group that is gaining a following of Christians, and he can do nothing but spew out hatred toward them. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. You know, when he comments about his own track record later on, he says that he brought many of them in and that they died because of his testimony. And so here is a man who is living his life in such a way that is the opposite against Christ. But I want you to see the transformative power of Christ in what happens next. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks." And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so there's his encounter with Christ. That's when he gets saved. He goes from not believing in Christ to believing in Christ, from rejecting the lordship of Christ to accepting Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Now watch the transformation. Drop down verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost." And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then Saul, certain days with the disciples were, which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, "'Is not this he that destroyed them?' Which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. Now, think about that, that's the first week of his salvation, right? I mean, that that may be the first day of his salvation. But what we are seeing is that that gives us an indication of the trajectory. And as we read the remainder of Acts and the books that Paul wrote in the New Testament, we find out that his life was completely transformed because of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I just want to give you six areas of transfer. I, I need two hands for that, don't I? Six areas of transformation. These elements of transformation that are evidenced in the life and writings of Paul. Number one, his mentality was transformed. His mentality was transformed. Before he got saved, before he yielded to Christ, he thought that he was okay. As a matter of fact, he thought he was better than okay. If you read Philippians chapter 3, he gives the list of his pedigree and all of his accomplishments and those things that he thought made him more righteous than anybody else. But then he goes on and he says, Hey, you know what? Then I met Christ and everything that I counted as a positive, I saw it as a negative and saw that they added up to nothing. Nothing more than but dung and that I traded them all so that I might have Christ. The transforming power of Christ will change your mentality and it will change my mentality from self-righteous to substitutional righteousness. It will make me understand I'm not okay. And we live in a world full of people that think that they're okay just the way they are. You've seen the bumper sticker. I was born all right the first time. Oh, no, you're not. Amen. Jesus said, you must be born again. Larry Clayton told me if I wasn't born in Shelby County, I needed to be born again. <laughs> but I believe everybody in Shelby County needs to be born again too, right? Would you agree? We're not okay. And that takes the transforming power of Christ to bring us to that point where we say, you know what? I'm not okay the way that I am. This is not... It doesn't matter if everybody in my peer group accepts me as I am This is not acceptable to God. And so transformation changes the mentality. It changes the way that we think. And if you're going to be different, you have to think different, right? I'm not talking Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking, thinking and it will be so. But I'm telling you, everything starts on the thought level. Where does lust begin? If you've looked on a woman with lust in your heart, right, is what Jesus said. Every, thinking, every action begins as a thought. When Achan saw those goods in the Jericho, he desired them and then he took them. There's a progression that begins. And so it, it starts transformation here. Thinking differently. His mentality. Paul's mentality changed. He went from thinking I'm okay to realizing I'm not okay. I need Christ. Number two, language. His language changed. Now, I know, it's an old line of preachers, right? We're all the time talking about language. Don't be using those filthy cuss words, vulgarities, euphemisms. I'm telling you what, everything was outlawed in my house when I was a kid. We couldn't even say gosh in my house because that was a substitute for using the name of God, right? And uh, maybe you've had those rules or maybe you've been around people that have those rules. You say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this, that... When we are transformed by Christ, not only does it affect the way we think, it affects the way that we speak. Do you remember how Saul was speaking before he met Jesus? He was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Does he breathe any of that out after he gets saved? No. Who wrote more about grace in the New Testament than anybody else? That guy. That hate-filled persecutor. That man who had nothing good to say about Christ or Christians and hated every one of them and wanted every one of them to die and did his best to try and execute them now is a man who speaks to them about the love of Christ, about loving one another, about giving grace to one another. I believe it is him that said, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. What, is, what do you attribute that to? I attribute it to the transformative power of Christ. When he was compliant with what Christ was doing in his life, not only did it change the way he thought, but it also changed the way that he spoke. He went from cursing the name of Christ to confessing the name of Christ. And if I had time this morning... I would take you to other passages in Paul's writings where he speaks about this stuff in the past tense. He was. He used to be. I once was this. What is that? that that's an indication of the transformation that took place in his life through Christ. Amen. Number three. Number three, relationships. Relationships. This interesting. He went from hostility toward Christian. How was his relationship with Christians in Acts 8 and beginning of 9? Good, not good? Bad, right? He had no relationship with those people. He hated them. He wasn't interested in getting to know them. He didn't care if you were a good person or if you cooked extremely good bread. He didn't care about that, right? He knew one thing. You're a Christian. I don't like you. But what happens? I think it's so funny. Ananias is the... Apprehensive servant of God, that, that when Saul gets saved, God appears to Ananias and says, Hey, go, you know, Saul, he's one of mine now. Go, go tell him what to do. And he <laughs> What? This guy came to kill us, Lord. I don't think I want to go talk to him. And so he enters in so softly, doesn't he? Brother Saul. <laughs> uh, I, I just can hear the timidity in his voice when he comes in. Why? Because he knew that this guy hated him. And then all of a sudden now, instead of hating Christians, you know what happens there in Acts 9? He tries to join them, right? Doesn't he he try to go down to Jerusalem and get in with the disciples and they're like, no thank you, no, mm mm-mm. Now, we know who you are. We don't want you infiltrating our ranks. It isn't until Barnabas, the son of consolation, comes along and vouches for him and brings him in. Hey, guys, it's for real. He's saved. He wants to be a part of you. Isn't it amazing that his relationships were changed by the transforming power of Christ? And before we sit here and justify and say, you know what, my relationships with Christians are okay, I would say, how about all relationships You see, because it doesn't just pertain to whether or not you like the people in your church. I believe that the transforming power of Christ will cause us to work at having good relationships with everyone that we can. As a matter of fact, that is the primary relationship, isn't it, with the Lord Jesus Christ? when we are reconciled to God through Christ and we enter into a relationship with Him, that becomes our foundation for all other relationships. And I say that if this relationship is right, it's going to cause the other relationships to be right. And that means we have to work at it, doesn't it? Does Saul work at it? I see him working at it. I see him trying to get in with these people. I see him trying to make concessions. I see him going from hostility to hospitality. I see him going from hating to loving these people. And then the same should be true in our lives. If your relationships are a mess, Jesus can fix that. Now, there's no doubt that it takes work, doesn't it? The Bible tells us sometimes we've got to confront some things. That's part of the relationship process. Hey, a relationship process. Sometimes you've got to draw the boundaries, don't you? Don't cross over this. I remember old Jacob had to do that with his father-in-law. And he's like, hey, here's the line, dude. Don't cross this one. We'll stack up some stones so you know right where it's out." For you to have a good relationship, you might have to define the boundaries with somebody. But the fact is we ought to be able to have right relationships with the people that God has brought into our lives. And I believe that the transforming power of Christ can make those relationships right if we're compliant to what God wants us to do. Number four, values. Values. The Bible tells us that when we get saved, our value system will change, right? Jesus said in Matthew 6, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, these, break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures. Where? In heaven. Right? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so there's a value system that changes. There's a transformation in our value system. Before we get saved, we don't value Christ or the things of Christ. We value the things of the world. Saul gave testimony about how his value system changed. And here's what I think is amazing. Now, here's the point I want to draw on you today, is that his value of the church changed. Right? Before he got saved, how much did he value the church? Right? That's a negative. That's minus symbol there. He cared nothing for the church. He wanted to destroy the church. He could care less if it survived or not. He wanted it to be wiped out. But then, after he gets saved... What kind of value did he place on the church? Oh, he became the greatest church planter in the New Testament, did he not? Didn't he go planting churches up in Antioch? Wasn't he the first one that went into uh, Greece, into Europe, planting churches? Didn't he plant a church in Philippi, and then another in Thessalonica, and then another in Berea, and then another in Corinth? I mean, didn't he plant churches in Ephesus? And from Ephesus, didn't they plant churches in Colossae and and, uh, in other places? So, this transformation caused his value system to change. And one of, the, one of the things that increased in value in his thinking was the church of Jesus Christ. We live in a day and time when the church has been completely redefined. The church is a building. Uh, what's going on down at the church? Now, I understand that. I'm not trying to get everybody to stop calling the building the church. But if you go back in history... And uh, like your pastor probably reminds you from time to time, they used to say the church gathers here. Right? Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. Today, what's more, I would say what's more common is we view the church as an event. Right? Church happens at this time on this day. You know what the problem with that is, is that, you know, if I miss the event this week, I'll catch it next week. Well, you know what? Uh, You know, I've been to a lot of those events. I may not go to the... And when we miss view the church when we misunderstand the church the value goes down but when we see it the way that Christ sees it as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, as, uh, as the, the, the entity that He shed His life's blood for, all of a sudden that transformed power of Christ will cause us to value the church and say, you know what, this is something that's supposed to be high on the priority list. This is not optional. This is not something that I hit or miss. This is something that I want to invest in and I want to be a part of and I want to give my life to the work of Christ. And so we find that his values were transformed. Number five, I'm not exactly sure how to say this. Let me say it in a couple of ways. His stubbornness was transformed. Now, I I come from a long line of stubborn people, right? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, uh, I was raised in West Virginia. We're just a bunch of hillbillies down there. We don't trust anybody from the outside and we do it the way we want to do it. And if you don't like it, just keep your nose out of, it. we don't care. Right, so I'm telling you, I know what it is to be stubborn and say, you know what? Mm-mm, nope. I don't, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do it my way. And you know, stubbornness is a great quality If you're stubborn about following Christ or you're stubborn about being obedient to the Lord, but it's a horrible quality when it's misdirected, And before this, Saul was stubborn, was he not? He was like a dog with a bone. In Acts chapter 8, he is just wreaking havoc on the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9, he's no longer satisfied to stay there in Jerusalem. Hey, you know what? That church is expanding, so the persecution must expand. And with stubbornness and tenacity, he goes to the high priest and says, give me jurisdiction that I might go. And if I find any in Damascus, I can bring them back here, and we can prosecute them and execute them. And he had a stubbornness and an obstinance. As a matter of fact, when Jesus appears to him and he says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know what that tells me? That God was convicting Saul before he ever got saved. That with his stubborn uh, tenacity to persecute the church, there was something pricking him in his heart every time he did that. When he gave the authority for Stephen to be stoned, God was pricking his heart about that and his stubbornness would not allow him to yield. But what happens when he gets saved? Well, that stubbornness becomes submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has two questions there in Acts chapter 9. Who are you? And that's so important. You cannot be saved believing in the wrong God no matter how sincere you are. You must know who the true and living God is. He is the creator God. He is the redeemer God. He is the triune God. He is the God who became a man. He is the only true and living God. And He's the only way to be saved. So you've got to know who He is. But you know what the second question Saul asks? What would you have me to do, Lord? That is an expression of complete submission to the Lordship of Christ. Who are you? What do you want me to do? Man, I'd say that that would be a great question for every Christian to ask. Lord, what would you have me to do? Amen. Don't stubbornly continue on in the path that you have chosen because you've been at it so long it would look bad on you to change. Is stubbornness a terrible thing? I've seen stubbornness tear families apart, I've seen stubbornness cost people their job. I've seen stubbornness rend relationships apart. Why? Because people just were too stubborn to admit that they were wrong or to concede in any way. And I'm telling you, it'll do great damage to your Christian life if you're simply stubborn and unwilling to yield to the lordship of Christ. And then the sixth and, and final area of transformation is in Saul's influence. 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 He went from being a persecutor of Christians to becoming the pattern for Christians. Think about this. He gives a personal testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he says this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before transformation, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it for this cause, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all suffering for a pattern To them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. You know, when we yield to the transforming power of Christ, it will change us on many fronts thinking, speaking, relationships, values, stubbornness. But what about influence? Every one of us has influence. Saul, before he was transformed, used his influence to push people away from Christ. And you know, when I look back at my life, I did the same thing, although it may not have been in the same way. I didn't go and persecute Christians, but I certainly tried to get people to go along with my sin. Hey, let's go out tonight. Let's party tonight. Let's drink tonight. Let's do this. That was an influence, drawing them away from Christ. But after he gets saved, now he uses his influence to try and push people to Christ. He becomes a pattern that people can follow. And so let me ask you, what are you going to do with your influence in this new year? How are you going to use it? You say, I don't influence anybody. Well, that's still using your influence. You're just choosing not to influence people toward Christ. Why don't we make that decision that we're going to allow Christ to transform us and that we are going to allow Him to transform our influence to try and bring more people toward Christ in 2018, that we're going to witness more, that we're going to invite more. We're going to have somebody in our home. You know what I've discovered as a pastor I've tried many different methods of trying to follow up on people and reach people. And I, we door knocking and visiting and people would come to the church. And I used to call them, hey, can I come by and visit you? I'd love to, you know, you visited the church. I'd love to visit you. And I can't tell you how many people would not let me come to their house. Maybe I was asking the wrong way. I tried to have my wife call. I tried to have my secretary call. And I, I got similar, similar responses. But you know what changed? I, I started asking people to come to my house. Somebody visited the church, and then I'd send them a note and then I'd call them and say, Hey, you know what, it's great to have you. How about you come up to the house? We'll have some, we'll have some dessert and coffee. And I have not found anybody who will turn me down on that yet. Isn't that amazing? I think God said something about hospitality in the Bible. I think He said something about using our homes to be hospitable. You say, I want to have more influence. Have somebody in your home. Ah, oh, my home's a mess. Yes, so's everybody's, right? I mean, we all work. They get dirty. They don't, They aren't perfect. Nobody's looking to come to a museum. But I'm telling you, if you want to have God transform your influence, break bread with somebody. And you know what I found is that there are walls that come down in that home that never come down inside of a church building. You can talk about a lot of stuff in Sunday school. But I'm telling you, you get somebody in your home and they'll really open up to you and they'll share with you the areas where they are struggling or the areas where they have need and they will give you the opportunity to share with them the transforming power of Christ. And that's the full circle. That's what it always comes back to is us being transformed by Christ so that we can bring others to Christ and they can be transformed. Would you bow your heads with me? we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. Perhaps this morning as we finish out our year, maybe you'd like to finish it out with a word of prayer. Perhaps you'd like to come to this altar this day and just invite God to do the deep transforming work that He wants to be done in your life. Perhaps one of these areas is an area that God is pricking you about. And you realize that you've been stubborn like Saul for too long. And now it's time to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Pastor Jim.